Our scripture reading today is from John 13, 1 through 7. If you'd like to follow along in our Pew Bibles, this is page 900. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Chapter 13, if you were to divide the book of John up into two halves, this would kind of be the beginning of that second half. We're, we're going to be continuing on to this Gospel of John series between now and Easter and uh, between now and then. There are going to be a few Lenten messages peppered in there, but we'll mostly be looking at the Gospel of John. We've already looked at John chapters 1 through 12 uh, these past several months, and the setting now is, is that we're in Jerusalem and entering into Holy Week. Now, I know we're 10 weeks away from actual Holy Week, but uh, we're going to be slowing down that Holy Week over the next 10 weeks or so and taking the next couple of months to go over this incredible revolutionary story. And the hopes is to just get it deeper into our minds and deeper understanding of Jesus revealing his glory. So, the Passover, the Lord's Supper, the betrayal, the crucifixion, Good Friday, resurrection. We're going to look at all of those things just at a slower pace. And so today we'll be looking at this really fascinating section of scripture when Jesus gathered his disciples. He dismissed Judas Iscariot from the room. And then he invests the rest of his time that evening, which I imagine was several hours, teaching them and they're partaking over this Passover meal. And so this is where Jesus is surrounded by his closest friends, his, his best friends. John's gospel is, is so rich, it's so deep, and, and that first half that we went over the past couple of months, that is sometimes referred to as the book of signs. When we looked at that part of John's gospel, Jesus did so many mighty works. He did so many signs. John wrote in chapter 21, verse 15, now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, where every one of them written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And what we have in John's account are the mighty works that John did include in the gospel, and John chose signs that would manifest the glory of Jesus. And you look at the first miracle, that first sign when Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. John chapter 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That's what it was about. 
And the verse continues, and his disciples believed in him. The disciples believed in him. But what did John write in the beginning of the gospel? You look back to John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So not everyone who saw the signs will believe in Jesus or did believe in Jesus. And you look at John chapter 12, starting in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And so after that point, no more public signs. That was the book of signs. There, there are no more public signs, and we move from the book of signs, chapters 1 through 12, to what some people refer to as the book of glory. Chapters 13 and on refer to the book of glory. And so Jesus will be glorified. And we're moving into this section where he moves from these public signs and he gathers this most intimate group of friends and he reveals to them his glory. So this is the movement that is happening. And when people don't believe in Jesus... Jesus does not entrust himself to them. And when people do believe in Jesus, even with all of our sins and all of our faults and all of our imperfections, Jesus does entrust himself to us. And so this is about belief. And those who believed in Jesus saw things from Jesus that the rest of the world couldn't see. But he entrusted those who believed in him with himself. And those who rejected him don't have the ability to absorb all the glorious things, the chapters 13 and on, that Jesus says, and the things that he did, chapters 1 through 12, as evidenced in John's gospel. And from this point on, there are no more signs. There are no more public signs. But he does continue to do them in private. Steph read for us verses 1 through 7, so I don't want to rehash all those verses, but verse 1 is the introduction to this new section. It's the second part of John's gospel. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that this hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And so here Jesus has this very deep awareness of his own eternal, glorious, divine identity, that he came from God and that he is going back to God. Take a look at John chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. There's a very interesting term here, the side. In Greek, side is translated in the bosom of the Father. So continuing on that verse, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now this intimacy of Jesus at his Father's side, in the bosom of his Father... Fast forward to John chapter 13, verse 23, and maybe this will give you a picture of this closeness between Jesus and John. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Same thing in the Greek. The bosom of Jesus. This is just how they sat. This is how they ate. 
amongst close friends, just kind of leaning back and kicking back with their friends and eating and nothing separating them. Everything that is said, you can hear the heartbeat of the guy you're leaning on and just like kicking back and enjoying the fellowship, hearing everything, all the whispers. That's what you kind of have to envision between Jesus and his heavenly father. There's no separation, no secrets. He knows the father's heartbeat. He hears that. And so Jesus is using this occasion to share some very big news. And it's a reminder of what was already known from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which reads this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus is the Lord of glory. He is very aware of his ministry and what he has to do. He is also aware that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Now what was spoken about in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is happening in John chapter 13. And Jesus is beginning to enter into this powerful darkness, this intense conflict. And he knows it's time now. I'm about to get into this. That he's about to enter into battle for the salvation of of the world. He is the God of all eternity. And at this point in time, he's right at the point in time, the most significant point of all history, he's about to enter the ring. The other party has already entered the ring. He's waiting. He's ready. And he's using one of Jesus' closest, best friends to betray him. And so this is the background. This is the context. It's back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Let me reread verse 1. Hopefully this gives you a better picture of what's happening. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that this hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own disciples, including Judas Iscariot, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What end is this? What is he talking about end? And sure, it is the end of their lives, but it is also the end of Jesus' life, which has no end. That this love is eternal. That Jesus' love is more than we could ever imagine. And so if you can imagine the depth of Jesus' love for his own, what he is willing to do, what he's willing to go through, Jesus is God of all things, and he has all authority. Look back to John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The God of power, the God of authority, is willing to be humiliated in order to save us. The Lord of everything is going to humble himself to the extreme to show us who he is and what he's all about. Verse 4, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. 
what we have here is Jesus getting up in the middle of the meal to wash his disciples' grubby feet. He leaves the head of the table. He's at the head of the table where he belonged. And he goes around the table washing the disciples' feet, including Judas Iscariot's feet. And there are very interesting words used in verse 4. And it's these words, laid aside. Laid aside. It's the same verb used for when Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. It's the same words used in John chapter 10, verse 17 in the original text. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. What John is doing, he is drawing a connection between what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and what Jesus did in John chapter 13. What Jesus is doing by washing his disciples' feet is directly tied to what Jesus said about laying down his life. And you notice what Jesus did in the upper room in John chapter 13. And what is written by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And I want you to just picture in your mind the parallel stories going on of what Jesus is doing, washing his disciples' feet in John chapter 13 and what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. Let me read this for you. Please keep in mind the upper room, Jesus having this Passover meal, and he's about to wash his disciples' feet. Verse 5, Philippians chapter 2. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the humiliation. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Picture Jesus in that room washing feet. That's our God of glory. Who humbled himself. Almighty God, all-powerful God, God of all authority. Who humiliated himself. Not necessarily at the feet washing, but to the point of death. Taking upon our sins and going into that darkness. Plunging himself into that darkness for you and me. And if you can just put yourselves in the sandals of the disciples for a while, in that upper room, as Jesus is washing their feet, how uncomfortable would you be? Wouldn't that be so uncomfortable? You followed your master for three years who has raised people from the dead like Lazarus, who has given sight to the blind, who has allowed people who could not walk to now walk. All these things, and now this person is going around the table washing your feet. And so if you can picture that this is what is going to be done on the cross, how Jesus would humble himself, how he would humiliate himself, how he would be stripped of everything in order to save the lowly. He's going around the table until he gets to Peter. Oh, Peter. Chief knucklehead, right? 
he couldn't see that Jesus is enacting this work of salvation right before them. This enactment of him going to the cross is happening in this enactment of washing feet, and he, he can't see this. And to be fair, none of the disciples see this. But none of them resisted like Peter, right? None of them fully understood what Jesus meant about being a servant until way later. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus was showing this to them. He's showing them doing this. But Peter can't get it through his head yet. Verses 6 and 7. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. This statement is so true of Jesus, isn't it? God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Whatever you're going through in your life, what in the world are you doing? What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards, you will understand. How many times has this been true for you? I don't know. I haven't counted, but I should. Most of the time, it's really frustrating. You just can't believe, like, what's going on? Why are you doing this? But then you understand later. And there are so many things going on in your life right now, so many things going on in the world right now, and we're just saying, like, what? And God is saying, later. You'll understand later. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. So typical Peter, resistant Peter, essentially telling Jesus, No way. You're not touching these feet. Not going to happen. Never. Not in a million years. But then you notice how quickly Jesus changed Peter's mind. It happened pretty fast. Continuing on in verse 8, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Matter of seconds, really. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head, like everything. I said, like, wash everything. I'm back in a baby bubble bath. Just like scrub me down, right? Like. <laughs> and Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Chapter 13 and on is the book of glory, right? What is so glorious about washing feet? Why is that so glorious? All throughout youth group and college stuff and mission trips and all this stuff, I've washed feet. Like, we've had these feet washing ceremonies. Now, even here, like we've done it here with cross streets, we've done feet washing and things like that. And I have to confess that it is oftentimes more gory than it is glory. Like it did. No glory. So what's going on here? Right, Jesus asked, do you understand what I have done to you? So, so he's going to teach them. He's going to show them his glory. But he's going to show them in a way that they're going to understand through this 
sign, this private sign. Jesus is giving them this enacted representation of what he had come to do and what he is going to do in that holy week to humiliate himself and to be back into his rightful place. You see how this passage, how Jesus is drawing us in to see his glory through this simple feet-washing process and to increase our belief in Jesus. And the more that we do that, the more we are entrusted with him. We are entrusted with Jesus. And the knowledge of Jesus will be entrusted to us more and more as our belief in Jesus increases by the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus did was so prophetic. You look at verse 12. After Jesus did what he needed to do, what did he do? He resumed his place. Back to the head of the table. And it is in parallel to what he did after his death and his resurrection. What did he do? He goes back to resume his place by the side, the bosom of his father, of his heavenly father's side. It goes back to John chapter 10, right? For this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down from my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It's the same thing happening with the feet washing as Jesus on the cross and being resurrected. Jesus humiliates himself washes his disciples' feet in a physical picture, in a spiritual picture. He dies on a cross, and he's humiliated in front of all the people during this feast. Millions of people are in Jerusalem at this time. But what happens at the end? After the feet washing, he resumes his rightful place of authority, and the same thing is happening in his death. After his death and resurrection, he resumes back to his rightful place of authority by his father's side. He lays his life down on his own accord. He takes it up again, and his disciples don't see the parallels. They don't see Jesus enacting that for them. They don't understand yet. Not until the resurrection. Not until the resurrection. Is that what he was doing? Is that why he washed my feet? Okay, I get it now. Here I thought, I was like, this is so weird. It's like, this dude's just coming around washing my feet. Like, what does this mean? That's what he's trying to show us. And then he went back to his rightful place. He went back to his rightful place. Oh, my gosh. He's showing them his glory by a simple feet washing. He died. He resurrected. He resumed his place. Now, how do we apply to this practically? How do we apply this lesson? Well, what Jesus has done for us, we are to do for others. Jesus has given us an example of, of how to live. And you simply look at someone like Peter, how he transformed to, you are never washing my feet to what he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. Likewise, You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You think at all Peter was looking back into the upper room as he was writing this? Thinking about his brother Judas Iscariot? Thinking about all the things that were happening and Jesus washing feet and humbling himself, humiliating himself? He learned. He actually understood what Jesus taught, what he was enacting in the upper room, that Jesus died to save our sins. And from his death, we are also given an example of how to live our life, that we are to copy Jesus. Copy him. All of us know how to do this. We all went to school, so you know, we, all, we all know what to do. It's how most of us learn how to write the alphabet, isn't it? I think it's done the same way nowadays, even with all the technology. Outline of an A with the dots and then the outline of a B. And, like, and then the kid just you know, traces the letters with all the dots and you just start copying. And we repeatedly do this until we know it. And then we start combining these letters to form words. And these words form sentences and so on. And we can write books and whatnot. And so from Peter, who would not let Jesus wash his feet, to Peter, who wrote 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter became more and more like Jesus. He imitated Jesus, just as we are to imitate Christ. Continuing on in John chapter 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. To imitate Christ is what we are to do. And anything that you have said no to when it comes to Jesus asking you a question or that you've ever said, never. I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to say that. I'm never going to believe that. I'm never. To something that Jesus has asked of you. Not a wise thing to say. Just, I'll just leave it at that. Right? It's not a wise thing to say. And some people may be like Peter, but when we're truly disciples of Jesus, what once was a no, what once was a never, will become a yes, and will become certainly. Just as it was for Peter. Right? There's just this not yet aspect to it. And maybe you find yourself in a situation like this now. Maybe you have intentions to never be receptive to what Jesus Christ has done for you. But the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. And you are realizing what Jesus has come to do for you that he is washing your feet. He's not discriminating against the washing of feet. He washed Judas Iscariot's feet too. That Christ not only forgives you, 
but he transforms you into his image. And the things that you've hardened your heart toward, those very things that you've calloused your heart about, Jesus wants to touch that and break that hardness, that callousness of heart that is within you, and to have you reach a place of humility. That you're wrong. It's not Christ who is wrong. It is not the scriptures that are wrong. It's not as God who is you're wrong, but your heart is too hardened to admit that. To the point where it's evident that Christ has transformed you from where you once were to who you are becoming in him and imitating him. That you are invited into a friendship with Christ. Like the disciples were, with Christ. Will you accept the friendship today? That's the question that we have. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are a prideful bunch. Whether it is someone who is so rebellious and rejecting of you like a Judas Iscariot, or even like a Peter who is fully there receiving everything you say, but then not fully. Like there, There's this line that he's not willing to draw that he thinks he's so righteous and it's coming from a good place, right? He, it's coming from a good place where you are so high and that he can't accept that you would even wash his feet. But then there's that misunderstanding that if we can't do that, then there's this inability for us to receive that you died for our sins, that we are indeed wrong, that indeed you are right. And so, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be softened, that our eyes would be opened to have seen what you have done for us, to see it clearly. For those who have not been touched by your Holy Spirit, this is just words. Nothing's happening spiritually. And I do pray, Lord, that a supernatural divine work would happen for those people. That the pride and the callousness and the hardness would be removed that they would be able to hear your voice and to understand what you did for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Susanna is in the right front pew and Mike's in the left front pew. I'll sit like in the second pew on the left here if you want to talk about what was said today. If you do not know Christ, it's the most important decision of your life for all eternity. There's no other decision more important. So let's talk. We'll be available for prayer, and at this point, if you have communion elements, great. If you don't, uh, just hold up your hand and we can get that over to you. The wafer on top of this contraption is symbolizing the body of Christ broken for you. It's something that we do here regularly at regeneration, a constant reminder, something that we've been told to do until the return of Christ, and so we do. And this symbol of a broken body of Christ, the symbol of humiliation, of a God who is all-powerful with all authority, taking on our flesh and bone to live amongst us, not as a king, as a lowly servant who washes feet, to resume his rightful place. This is our Savior. This is our God. Let's take this in Jesus' name. 
and the fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us, the humiliating act of being on the cross. We take this in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, thank you for these simple reminders, this simple sacrament that we take in anticipation and eagerness of your return when all things are made right. Until that time comes, Lord, we don't understand what's happening, but we have faith in you that you will give us those answers when appropriate in Jesus' name. Amen.